Hello and welcome to He's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about The Day of the Locust, 1975 drama. It's based on Nathaniel West's novel from 1939. Nathaniel West has come up once before on the podcast. He wrote, uncredited I think, on Stranger on the Third Floor, that early noir that we watched. But he's probably best known for this novel. Mm. Neither of us have read the novel. We understand it to be in the critique slash satire vein of Hollywood. Nathaniel West wrote a lot for Hollywood. Uh, and this film is directed by John Schlesinger and the screenplay is by Waldo Salt. And they mm. work together, you said... In Midnight Cowboy. On Midnight Cowboy. So uh, the film is about a young aspiring artist, painter, called Todd, who goes to Hollywood to work on like drawings for films, you know, costumes, mm. that sort of thing. And he moves into this small sort of villa area where a lot of people live and all these people are kind of on the outskirts of Hollywood right mm. so there's the kind of aspiring young actress and her father who's an old vaudevillian who can't let kind of vaudeville go really although mm. he's now selling things door to door Burgess Meredith plays him and he's fantastic an accountant who later shows up Donald Sutherland plays him mm-hmm. there's a dwarf as well played by Billy Bart uh, who <laughs> everyone will recognise really he's he's the dwarf who stops people from kissing in the Petting in the Park number in Gold Diggers of 1933. And he appears in a lot of those early Busby Berkeley numbers. Mm. In Honeymoon Hotel, he appears as well. And uh, and I've just learned that he was Mickey Rooney's antagonist in the early Mickey Maguire shorts, mm. right before you know Mickey Rooney became a star. So he's somebody who had an enormously long career in Hollywood, and he's also fantastic in this, I think. Yeah, so his character is this drunken... I'm not sure it's entirely explicit what he does, but I guess he must be a performer in yes. movies. But he's this aggressive drunk, mm. largely, and he's kind of quite cynical and sarcastic about things a lot of the time. And the film is about how this group of characters, there are others as well, their lives interact as they're kind of working on the fringes of Hollywood. None of them is a star. Mm. Um the tone at the start I really wasn't with and you know because maybe 30-40 minutes in you said you were really enjoying it and I was going this isn't my cup of tea this because it's quite sunny and rosy and I thought oh, I was plodding along and it just wasn't mm. getting to me and as the film develops and things get darker and darker it got under my skin more ah it's interesting because I thought the worst bit about the film was the ending yeah the well just before the end the whole premiere and mm. you know the, the locust bit yeah I thought that was the worst directed bit. I was really charmed by it all until that point, really. Mm. You know? Well, I didn't say necessarily that was the best bit, but the darkness that the film develops is what yes. I started to enjoy. Yes. You know, the, the people. well, there's this crack in the wall in Todd's house, and that's mm. when he starts sort of painting over it and stuff, and it's just this, this indication of, you know, things aren't perfect. It's like a... Um, a David Lynch, you know, I mean, yes. it's, it's hardly subtle, right? You know, it's just like under the surface, things are grimy. Yeah. But the way they come out, I kind of enjoyed. Mm. I enjoyed, I enjoyed <laughs> almost all of it because I suppose it feeds into, you know, my likes or my desires, so to speak. You know, it's all about Hollywood. Uh, there are lots of scenes in the studio at Paramount Studios on sets you know, with a director on a crane with his camera directing extras. I mean, you know, to have the 1970s recreate the 1930s where it's still within living memory. Mm. Yeah, kind of, you know, a lot of those older people there would have been, would have remembered what it was like, you know, then. 
Uh, and also, like, a lot of it is, like, Art deco in 1930s. Well, you know, kind of, that was also a kind of living memory. Yeah, people would still have had, mm. you know, if you're like me and you don't redecorate your house often, it would probably all still have been, <laughs> like, Art Deco, right? <laughs> so, 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 you know, that is just me, yeah, what I bring to the film and why the film, why I like the film because it's fed into those uh, predispositions of mine. Um, I love Karen Black, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, she was a very, she was never a huge star, but she was this figure in the 1970s. Yeah, she, um, you know, she worked for Altman, she worked for Hitchcock and Family Plot. She was in Airport 75. Um, she was nominated for, uh, for an Oscar for, I think, Five Easy Pieces, maybe, with, with Jack Nicholson. And she's got, she's got kind of this, this earthy, I don't know, working class kind of roughness whilst being very emotionally delicate, yeah, mm. that really draws me in. So she's not like kind of, you know, this extraordinary beauty in the way that like, let's say somebody like Faye Dunaway was, you know, and she lacks the easy appeal of somebody like a Jane Fonda or a Goldie Hawn, you know, but there's something very interesting about her. Yeah, kind of, she's got a very memorable face and a kind of a persona. And I think it is that combination of like emotional fragility Right, with an earthy kind of face, really. Uh, I mean, you know, it's beautiful, but it's also, it has an earthiness, it conveys an earthiness. I find I'm very drawn to her. And she's, she's been very interestingly used in horror films, I think partly because of that. Yeah. What horror films was she? Uh, the Picks, Burnt Offerings, um, I can't remember later on. She has a sexuality in this, which yes. I think you could describe in the same way. And although it switches, you know, she starts off with this light kind of flirtatious thing with with Todd. And then when you get to the sort of campfire scene mm. with where Todd, there's her boyfriend or, well, maybe ex-boyfriend. She's move dating around. various people at the same time. Yeah, the cowboy guy and the uh, Mexican guy as well, mm. who I think is the cowboy's mate. Mm. And she's flirting over the campfire with the Mexican guy. Mm. And the camera gets really close up, and there's sweat, and there's booze, and kind of the you know they swig tequila, and it goes down over their faces, and it reminds me of like Whiplash, where there's so much focus in that film on close-ups of hands and eyes and mm. body parts and sweat and fluids, and it's like there's nothing romantic, you know, it's gruesome and grotesque, and it's like that here, and it gets really steamy, mm. and then you know you you've also got um, the two guys who aren't involved in this but want her, mm. and you you feel they're they're sort of they're, they're, they're angry male turmoil in it too that she's not flowing with them she's flowing with him and then it explodes yes I mean it's a very interesting character because on the one hand she is like a, I mean I prefer the French term which is allumeuse yeah, which means somebody who lights up men <laughs> as opposed to a prick tease yeah, which you know is more direct but also not quite as yeah well that too <laughs> but not only that um so, so in a way, that's a negative thing because really, on the one hand, she's she's not sleeping with anybody. She's initially right. She's hoarding her virginity, as the father says, but she takes advantage of the men. Yeah. So it's not just. I mean, it's a complex character. She likes them. She likes being with them. She enjoys being with them. She wants them as friends. But I think she also enjoys what their desire for her brings her things, ice cream, outings, <laughs> yeah, like she takes advantage of them, 
Right. We're all in it for the ice cream. <laughs> well, it made me think also it's a different time, right? It's kind of it's before the pill. Sex is not mm. so easy and it's much more dangerous, right? So, and I think, you know, one has to keep that in mind. It would have been freshly in mind of an audience in 1975 for whom the pill was a recent, yeah, mm. dating, I think, from the early mid-60s. Um, so the attitudes to sex are part of the film's tragedy, I think, because, I mean, basically this character ends up becoming like a high-class prostitute. And it's her father's death that pushes her on the edge, right? She to can't afford the funeral. Yeah. So, you know, she, she basically kind of turns to prostitution to pay for his funeral. Yeah. And struggles to keep things distinct, though in her mind they very much are, yeah? Mm. Sleeping with strangers is different than sleeping, yeah? And then you see her deterioration where at the end, yeah, she's just kind of sleeping with the people that she knows and wouldn't have slept with at the beginning because she's not in love, yeah? Mm. So that's kind of like a very interesting uh, character arc, actually. And I found that all kind of understandable. The film conveyed that, you know, all those different senses of self that are tied to ideas of self and and wants and desires and uh, ethics. Yeah, what what is what do you think is proper to do in one place and not in another? I understood it. What do you think of the main character and well, the actor um, William Atherton, who neither of us knew, and then I looked him up and he and we was, all knew him. <laughs> he's Walter Peck in Ghostbusters, yes. which is the EPA. I mean, this is in the time when if you worked for the Environmental Protection Agency and you were trying to shut down some people who were running around with plasma guns, that made you the villain. Yeah. I mean, well, maybe that's just America. You know? um, but that's him, right? And he's very recognisable from that. And the moment we found that out, it's so obvious that it's him. I mean, I rather liked him, actually. You, I, I think you can see why he never became a star. Well, I don't know, actually. I, I was, uh, yeah? Yeah, because I think he's so good. Of course, you can tell that this film is directed by a gay man, in my view, <laughs> because of the way that William Atherton is lit in this film. You know, the light is always, it's dappled, it's always hitting his lip, you know, it's, yeah, like he is kind of uh, made beautiful and um, eroticized by the lighting, yeah? So I liked him very much. And then, of course, as soon as we asked that question, who is he, then I think, why didn't he make more of an impression? Because he's the husband in Sugarland Express, He's in Looking for Mr. Goodbar, right? Like, you know, I, in this period alone, mm. he's in these incredibly big hits, high-profile films. Yeah, so kind of you begin to think, well, why didn't he make it, really? And obviously there are reasons, though interestingly, he has continued to work in major films, you know, during the whole career. I mean, I'm looking at some of them. He was in The Pelican Brief and, you know, uh, The Last Samurai and so on and so forth. So... You know, it's kind of... He hasn't disappeared, right? But if he hasn't disappeared and he hasn't made that much of an impression, then maybe that's why he wasn't a star. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he's very good in this. Yeah. The Last Samurai. Well, Winchester rep in The Last Samurai. That's, that says to me three lines. Maybe, you know. Somebody works uh, for Winchester. I, I mean, to be I don't know. I mean, it's true, for example, that I'm looking for Mr. Goodbar... You remember uh, Tom Berenger and you remember Richard Gere, mm. but you don't remember him, right? And of course, the whole film is about Diane Keaton anyway. So, you know, so these might be uh, small roles. But anyway, I, I think he's lovely in this. Yeah, so do I. Although, 
I, I think, again, this is something that improved me as the film went on because you, you got under his skin more and you saw this darkness when he tries to rape. Yes. But, you know, that's when that's when the, the, his character for me kind of turns. Yes. I guess, and you see this dark side yes. to him or this darkness inside him. Um, so what do we make of the film as, as a critique of Hollywood? Is it saying anything different to what we expect of films like this? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think in a way that's it's banal, right? Mm. You know, so it's taking this idea of Hollywood as the American dream, you know, and finding you know that underneath it, you know, where the locusts go, there's like carelessness and death and destruction and commodification and you know prostitution and crime and blah, blah. and violence. And it's violence. very violent, like the cockfights. Yeah, you know, so violent, and then he gets to him. Uh, uh, Burgess, uh, not Burgess Meredith, the, the dwarf. Sorry, licking blood off his yeah. chicken's beak, and you go, ugh, you know. And then at the end, you've got Donald Sutherland stamp. You, you don't see very much of it. Stamping, stamping the, child the child to child. death. Yeah, um, that's and, incredible. And the crowd, you know, going mad and then kind of tearing him to shreds and all this, yeah. and it becomes kind of not visually that exciting or as exciting as it could be. But I think. I think that is what, if there is something that sets it apart from other Hollywood on Hollywood critiques, I guess, that might be it. Because this was, um, it wasn't a hit, but it was a film with known actors and, you know, known director and so on. And it was Oscar nominated as well. It was a hugely expensive production. Big studio film got a major release Hmm. and it was an enormous flop. Yeah, but I think that's kind of, they're notable about it that in a film that is, at least on paper, big... You know, it's it's doing these it's some things that are they're quite outlandish with violence. I think there's a problem with that because the violence. I mean, my main critique, for example, of the scenes at the studio where the set falls apart mm. you know, and uh, potentially kills people, and the scene of the premiere, which is the metaphor for the locust, right, mm-hmm. um, is that the violence is not made exciting. So, you know, what you get is the brutality of it, yeah? Mm. You know, the, the Donald Sutherland stomping on a child is like a horrifying thing. But, you know, a film should also... Well, maybe not, actually, I'm thinking aloud. You know, but I would expect it to. And I like, you know, to be excited by, <laughs> you know, sets falling apart. Yeah, mm. there's a, yeah, to experience a sense of danger and thrill and... And the film doesn't manage any of that, actually. The set falls and you go... (laughs) 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 Splat, right? But it's like... It's it's subjective, but it doesn't make you participate. And it's not suspenseful. And so, actually, it's very interesting that the scenes... The horrifying scenes of brutality, for me, are the one with the chicken and the one with the child. Yeah. Whereas, you know, that whole scene at the premiere should have been a set piece of, you know... Yeah, which could have contained that as a center. Yeah, but actually all of those scenes of the crowd going wild, to me, they're very flat. Yeah, you do kind of get the, these um, like top-down shots where you see these hundreds of extras, but, the, but what they're doing in those shots is just like running in one direction. Mm. They're not, you know, whereas if you compare... Like, like, um, like, like in uh, Batman Returns, mm. you get similar things of like these scenes where violence and chaos explodes in like the town square but there's always something happening in each bit of the screen or each each shot that you you move to over here and someone's having some particular fight you go over here and someone's set something on fire you kind of want like more, more specificity to what well, the crowd is doing in this yeah scene. you're invested in it i mean even 
in a film, you know, like, uh, um, is it October, where, you know, there's the scene with the child, yeah, the baby carriage going down the stairs. <laughs> yeah, you know, the way that Eisenstein points you to the mother with the carriage, the crowd, you know, the... I mean, you're invested in it, even if it's only momentarily, right? Because you never see those characters again, you know. But in this, there is nothing to invest you in the progression or the development of that chaos, right? The film basically goes from Homer to the William Atherton character. Todd. Yeah, Todd trying to save Homer. But, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's not rendered suspenseful or exciting or visually spectacular even. You know, I think it really falls flat. Um, and it's a pity because those are clearly the scenes where most of the film's budget was spent yeah. for so little. <laughs> yeah. And you do kind of wonder, especially with the um, set collapsing scene, what the upshot of that really is. Because ultimately what it leads to is this thing about them. They had signs that said, danger, you know, this could collapse. And they hadn't put them out. Yeah. And it becomes this thing where Todd goes to the... Not so, is it studio head or producer? Yeah. Someone like that. Someone yeah. higher up. It's not specified, but, you know, basically the money man. Yeah. yeah. And also the art director. You yeah. do find out he's the art director later, saying these signs weren't put out. And it's when he's speaking, in fact, to the art director in particular, where he has this line. Um, he said, if someone had been killed, mm. Todd says, would it have made a difference? Yeah. And the art director goes, no, probably no. not. And then he's, and, um, and Todd goes, you know, the signs weren't put out. The, the studio was claiming that they were. And the art director goes... If they had been, would it have made a difference? Mm. So the, the and which I thought was kind of, you know, on its own, sort of nice, basically saying if someone had died, we don't care, it doesn't matter to us, and we also don't care whether the signs are out or not. We we'll do what we want. Well, we'll know? do what gets us the insurance money. Yeah, because it's all about getting the insurance to pay for it. Oh sure, but I mean, I think in terms of well, I was thinking of that. That struck me in terms of um, the moral. Um, yeah, 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 no, I get that. Moral as well. aspect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So basically, what has happened is the film has spent a lot of money on this set piece and a lot of time to make this one fairly banal thing of Hollywood will do whatever no. makes it money, yeah. regardless of and, moral or ethic. And have uh, foregone the opportunity of doing something visually dazzling yeah. with that set collapsing. Yeah, right. Certainly. You know, because even at that point, when you when you see those signs. I, 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 I expected things to blow up, right? Because I thought there was bombs under there. Yeah, <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought there was dynamite or something because, you know, you see the signs, danger, and then you see people smoking, yeah. right? And so you were expecting something to blow up. So actually when it collapses and, you know, when the whole thing is made to be about the sign, that's not very well narrated either, you know? So, so no, I think... especially. But, but I mean, the thing for me is it's just this huge, tremendous sense of waste to that. Yeah. That there's just all this time and expense has gone into making this fairly banal point you could have made in a different way. And and if, and if you, and actually wanting to make the point anyway, mm. like I say, it's it's banal. We kind of know this. This isn't like an outstandingly sort of yes. original point to be bringing up that Hollywood will do what it wants and fuck the morals. Yeah, and particularly at this time, you know, after you've lived through the Trump era, you know, <laughs> that people aren't straight arrow Bible thumpers from the Midwest. <laughs> I mean, really. So this idea of America being like, you know, show business in both church and consumer culture. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, surprise. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, I think what I love most about the film is the lighting, which is gorgeous. Conrad Hall. Yeah, it's just beautiful. Like at the beginning, 
you get like really it is that pulp lighting it makes all of Hollywood look you know beautiful and glamorous and sunlit you know and then of course it gets darker and darker and darker as it progresses mm. so the lighting is beautiful um, I love the performances you know I love Karen Black and Billy Barton and Donald Sutherland uh, who, when he appears and says his name is Homer Simpson, you go, what? <laughs> yeah. And I looked it up because I understood, I always yeah. understood Homer Simpson from The Simpsons to be named after Matt Groening's dad, uh-huh. Matt Groening, the creator. Um, and then I saw something that said, well, he, he talks about that a lot, but he had claimed once or twice in the 90s that he was named directly after this character. Oh, really? Um, so I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure either of those explanations is canon, but there seems to be some backup that Homer Simpson from this novel and this film. Well, you know, it makes a bit of sense, right? Because this Homer Simpson is dumb, uh, well-meaning, <laughs> always getting a bit of information and going in the wrong direction with it, right? <laughs> yeah, bump, yeah. So, so I think that there there's are, a certain relationship. There's a certain relationship, <laughs> and Donald Sutherland, I think, is really quite marvelous. I. You know, I was thinking, why did he take the part? Because actually, it's quite a minor part. And he is the top-billed star. You know, he was the biggest star of the mm. ones that we see. So it's kind of an unusual part to have chosen to take, though it's a very good part. And Burgess Meredith, I think it's a performance for the ages. You know, there's that moment where he comes down the San Bernardino apartments and he begins to tap dance and you just, like, light up with joy <laughs> at, you know, kind mm. of seeing that, really. He was Oscar yeah. nominated for it. Yeah, it's yeah. wonderful. Um, so those interrelations and um, the distinction between people's aspirations and wants and what they end up being kind of cornered to do is mm. really, you know, that conflict is what I found most interesting and touching about the film. Mm. There is something that I always... This film made me realise that I think is missing or just something that I don't like about f- films that are Hollywood critical, satires and taken apart and all that, which is that the cynicism in them never allows for any explanation of why you would want to be in Hollywood and actually what the joys might be. You know, all these people in Hollywood making this movie, done it for a reason, right? They kind of they must want to be there. They must yeah. think that there's something you know, unless they are literally all doing it because it's the only way they have to make money. Right? They're doing it because they think there's some, something valuable in telling these stories and doing it in this way. And um, and the most you ever get in, in stories that are critical and cynical of Hollywood is at the start, if people come in with, with, you know, kind of wide eyes and big ideas and then they're broken by the system. But, you know, that always feels a bit... Maybe that is, maybe banal's the right word for that as well. If, or, or, you know, too flat or too um, uncomplicated. That, you know, it's so easy to say, well, know, this is all shit. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I agree. I mean, so for me, for example... You see the Karen Black character, right? And um, she wants things, things that are difficult to get, right? Because also, you know, one of the things the film made me aware of is how expensive clothes were in the <laughs> 1930s, right? You know, like a pair of shoes might cost you like, yeah, a month's wages or something, yeah? Mm. So, so her desire for those things, right? And her delight in seeing herself on screen you know, and the attempt to kind of steal the picture where she, you know, she only has one line, mm. right? Yeah, so so actually, you know, fame as a catapult to identity and being given importance and, you know, to, to matter in the world, you know, whilst also 
you know, as a stepladder to being able to buy, to consume, right? Um, I think the film conveyed that to me. Yeah, but I think that comes under kind of what I'm saying. Like, what I'm saying is that you never get any feeling of, well, art is great, art is worth it, I love I love the movies. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's what they never ever allow for. And it's got to be, like, people have to think that way, even if they've been in Hollywood for a long time yes. and get super cynical about it. Yes. You know. I mean, I think, I think more recently, though, I can't think of specific examples, you know, but certainly kind of film as art is a more recent discourse, yeah. you know, than kind of film as fame. Um, so um, I wasn't sure about the flower in... The, the crack in the wall. The crack in the wall is a metaphor that's used continuously. But then so are Goya's paintings. Mm. Yeah, and many of them are taken from the Napoleonic Wars, you know, the series of drawings of disasters of wars. And those recur all the time. And actually, sometimes even some of the sets evoke Goya's paintings. And that scene where the set collapses is, is a... Napoleonic War, right? Yeah, and yeah, and and uh, it's referenced to in yeah. Goya's etchings and sketches and paintings. But what you don't really get in the film, to me, is the kind of brutality that you see in Goya's paintings, right? So there's a scene where you see this tree, and actually it's almost identical to a famous kind of uh, etching from the Caprichos, yeah, uh, the disasters of war, which is you know these corpses. Yeah, mm. uh, that have been um, with the tree branches piercing them, right? Mm. Yeah, so actually they've been pushed again. Yeah, they've been killed by being pushed, impaled, impaled on the tree. And one of them, you know, like this man's ass. Yeah, so he's been raped. Yeah, and killed. Right. Yeah, by being impaled. So Goya's paintings have like the shock. Yeah, mm. of you know the brutality and the horror of war, and also how it's also sexualized. Yeah, how. Sexual brutality is part of the yeah a horror mm. of war. Of course, you know, kind of women always being afraid of rape and so on, right? So, so you know, the the paintings evoke all of that in a way that the film really doesn't. You know, there was a point I found quite expressive that I didn't, I didn't latch onto at first, which is when uh, they host that party and the and outside the guys are getting drunk and having the cock fight, mm. and that's intercut with these shots of. Karen Black getting ready for the party and getting dressed and trying on different mm. dresses or what have you. And I was going, why are these, why are these shots cut in? They were kind of elliptical, right? Mm. Um, and then you get to the party and it's just her and these like five men mm. and they, drunk and getting drunker, start fighting over her. Right? They all want to dance with her. They start, you know, the, the dwarf starts kicking the cowboy and it gets quite violent. And I'm like, oh, right, this is, the, it made sense of it, right? This, this, is, the, this is the cock fight. And that's why it was there at the start. But I, it didn't make sense to me right then. But it piqued my interest. And, mm. But I guess I needed it to be made more literal. Yes. Five minutes later. The film has problems in uh, calibrating elements. Right? So, for example, one of the things that I really love about the film is its 1930s soundtrack. Right? <laughs> it begins, you know, Louis Armstrong singing Jeeper Creepers. And, you know, then it has a whole bunch of you know, 30 songs, a lot of Lawrence and uh, uh, Hart, uh, Rogers and Hart songs. And then you realize that, like, actually, you're meant to be looking at these songs ironically. Yeah, mm, kind of, mm. you know, whereas I never did. You know, like, <laughs> I'm, you know, you hear the song, isn't it romantic? And you're just swooning, yes, isn't it romantic? Yeah. And actually, 
it's not being conveyed that no it's not romantic because she's in a whorehouse right like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah the and, use... this, and jeepers creepers like you know jeepers creepers where do you get those peepers and so on and that kind of i guess speaks to like the commodification of hollywood and how it's all about your look yeah and we'll sell that on yeah but i hear the songs and i go jeepers yeah. and you you know you're not thinking so actually and i think that's a problem with the film not a problem with me yeah that you know <laughs> kind of uh make Maybe that wasn't if you if you really wanted a counterpoint, yeah. Then actually, you had to calibrate it differently. You know. I don't know if that was a problem with film because I think I got that, and I think <laughs> and, well, no. no. <laughs> okay. I mean, the thing is, you have an attachment to those songs. I do, and so you yeah. listen to them, and immediately, as you say, you're swept away into the world of Rogers and Hart, and. I'm not. I mean, I recognised the song and I liked it, uh, but I also saw that it's not romantic, and I got the joke okay, essentially. Okay, so you know? then, it's, yeah, but it's a problem with the film, nonetheless, because the audience for that film would have felt <laughs> for those songs as I do. <laughs> Maybe. Well, they, you know, 1975. Yeah. Well, we're not all romantic. Some of us, are, yeah, they've always been cynical. <laughs> <songs. laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, I've been wanting to see this film for a long time because, you know, I have this thing about an area of film. So, you know, in Canada, you were only allowed to go to films on your own, uh, 14 and over. Right. Yeah. Uh, unless it was Disney. Yeah. But most once, films once the ratings come in. Yeah. Yeah. And the film came out when I was 13. So it was one of those films that I was longing um. to see, but never could. And then I've never had the chance to see it. So this is the very first time I've seen it. So, you know, it kind of feeds into all my interests, really. And I'd always heard it was a big flop and, you know, and that it wasn't very good. And I wanted to see it anyway. And I must say that it's a lot better than I had been given to understand. I mean, I really loved it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I really loved many elements of it. Yeah, mm. whilst recognizing that it has, I think, quite severe flaws. I mean, I think, you know, the big set pieces are not well done, mm. you know, but... I was very enthralled with the characters, with the music, with the unfolding relationships. I mean, actually, I think the element of critique is the least interesting thing about it because it's so banal. Mm -hmm. you know, like, mm -hmm. It's not telling you anything new about that. But, for example, I love the way that the film dramatized the sadness of Karen Black's turn to prostitution yeah, and how she felt about it and her loneliness about it and so on whilst also indicating how she is being judged, yeah, mm -hmm. by others. And then also how, you know, that sadness incites behavior that she herself despises herself for. Uh, you know, that's quite a complex thing to convey, I think, yeah, and to dramatize. And I think the film does that very beautifully. Mm. And I like the title. Yes. I think the title is very evocative and, you know, the, the locust you think of locusts and you think of desolation and things being left in their wake and and the swarming yeah exactly and kind of all all consuming mm. sort of greed of them and um and i was kind of asking you know you say oh it's very obvious who the locusts are and i was thinking where is it you know i know at the end when there is a swarm of a mob you kind of think oh well this has to be a you know swarm of locusts um but up until that point i'm going like is it is it an is it the audience that wants this from the people, or is it the studios, or are they connected? You know, the studio, the audience want this, and the studios are happy to take what they want for people. But it made me think of the way that these people's lives are made desolate mm. by the system that they're in that takes things from them. You know, no one ends up happy in this film. 
No, you know? no one starts off happy, no one ends <laughs> up happy. Um, but you can see, you do see pleasure and joy and camaraderie between them, amongst them. Mm. Yeah, so which, which again, I think is part of what the film does that is complex and good, yeah, that it kind of conveys all of that. Mm. So, you know, none of them are happy, all of them are seeking but they do connect with each other in ways that give themselves each other momentarily pr- uh, pleasure and that incites, you mm. know, wants, you know. But um, I say if the locusts are, if, or if, the, if, the, if the reading we give the locusts is that they're the audience and they're that mob at the end, that I think is actually too simplistic because they only come in at the very end and it's kind of easy. The idea that it's the system is, I think, a, a, well, a, a more sensible, more a richer reading. Yeah, I mean, I I think you're meant to think that it's America itself, Mm. right? So that's why you have the sequences with Geraldine Page playing the big sister uh, church revival leader, you know, and also why you have the newspaper headlines with Roosevelt Mm. and, you know, yeah. Um, And of course, at this point, Hollywood was was mass media, right? Like, Mm. I mean, there was radio. And, you know, there were three news magazines, right? So, kind of, yeah, Hollywood was kind of, mm. had an importance then that it doesn't have anymore. Well, the newspapers uh, were all local, weren't they? Yeah, well, yeah, the, I think, yeah, the, new, uh, the, the U.S. only had local newspapers. I mean, I suppose if you were wealthy, you could subscribe to the New York Times. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's because you couldn't, they, the places were too far apart. You couldn't have a national press yeah. where you can here. In the 80s, for example, the big news agents would always carry, um, you know, the New York Times and so on. You, you know, so uh, yeah. part of a Sunday routine would be to get the New York Times along with your daily, you know, Montreal papers or whatever. But, uh, you know, at this time, um, I think that would have been unlikely. So to use, you know, metaphor, uh, Hollywood as a metaphor for mass culture, I think uh, makes sense. You know, and you also have kind of radio in the sense that, you know, the premiere, you you, you have the radio announcer live, mm-hmm. you know, from there. Um, but it's, I mean, as a critique of America, I just think it's weak, right? Mm. Those are not the film's strengths. I think the film's strengths for me is in that depiction of character. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Um, and in the way that it's filmed, because, you know, really, Conrad Hall truly is a great cinematographer. I mean... I kind of I was commenting on the cinematography before I realized who it was that was doing it. So yeah, and his was the other Oscar nomination, right? So best cinematography and uh, best actor in a supporting role. Yes. Should we find out who won that year? Sure. Supporting actor was won by George Burns for the Sunshine Boys. Mm. And best cinematography, Barry Lyndon, John Olcott. Okay, well that makes sense. Um, How's that for lighting? <laughs> <laughs> I saw Barry Lyndon the year it came out, and I remember being completely bored by it. <laughs> and yet, all my life, I've remembered like these close-ups of Marisa Berenson, mm. you know, in candlelight, looking gorgeous. So. It's all about the candlelight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so supposedly, uh, Kubrick had to wait for NASA to invent these lenses. To make the film some fucking movie thing. I won't do it without my NASA lenses. Yeah, I think this, uh, some of those things are so fetishized. <laughs> um, anyway, this is a film I've waited a long time to see. 
it's much better than its reputation has it. And I really love seeing it and I highly recommend. Yeah, it's got its pleasures for sure. They're just kind of outside the thing that you go into it for, which is the critique of Hollywood. Ignore that bit. Yes. The rest is quite good. Yes, though it is great fun to see the studios and the costumings and the cranes. You love all that. Yeah, if you're a film nerd, those things are lovely to see. Yeah, very nicely rendered. Yes. Hmm. All right. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.